Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. for worship. Now please enjoy the message. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. We love that you're here. We are in our fifth week of what will ultimately be seven weeks of a sermon series called The Other Six. I want to preface this up front because we're now two weeks out from today. I want to let you know that the next two weeks of this sermon series are going to get more and more personal. In fact, if you've noticed anything over this sermon series, the whole idea around this sermon series is we're directly addressing what so many of us can deal with, which is that we can often feel like our spiritual lives begin and end on Sunday morning. We can feel like our spiritual life starts right about the time we're getting ready for church on Sunday, And if you're super spiritual, you put on some Christian music, you put on Hope FM on the way into church, and then by the time the Jaguars are at halftime on Sunday afternoon, that's the end of your spiritual life for the week. And then you get around to next Sunday. But the reality for us is that God did not come and give up his life to purchase two or three hours of your week. God came and bled and died and rose again to buy and redeem 24-7, 365, every moment of your life. And so because of that, we can believe and we claim that everything is spiritual. Your whole life, every single area of your life is spiritual because all of it is owned, all of it belongs to Jesus Christ. And so as we've journeyed together, we have talked about work, we've talked about money and our wealth, we've talked last week about our emotional health. And so as you've noticed, we've gotten more and more personal and we're gonna continue that trajectory. And so I wanna make sure to go ahead and let you know right now that October 27th will be our last Sunday in this sermon series, and you wanna be here on October 27th. But I also want you to know that you need to entrust your children, fifth grade and younger, to our Kids Creek ministry on that Sunday. I'm gonna give you that, that same warning next week as well, but on October 27th, you need to entrust your children to ministry, because we're gonna be talking about some adult stuff on October 27th. So today we continue this sermon series with part five, metaphor marriage, metaphor marriage. Now what we've we've discovered together through this sermon series ultimately is that if our whole lives are spiritual, if every aspect of our life is spiritual, then what we also know is that all relationships are spiritual relationships. Every relationship in your life is a spiritual relationship. And we know this for a number of reasons, but to fully understand where we're coming from, we have to understand a little bit about first century Jewish culture. Now, in the first century, 
the uh, Jewish religion or the, the Israelite people were really broken up into three major kind of warring factions, three different political parties, if you will, within the people of Israel that were kind of fighting for um, power and political uh, affiliation and, and, and people who were really trying to say, hey, our version of this ancient Jewish religion is the best or the most important version of it. And so in the first century, you had a group called the Pharisees and a group called the Sadducees and a group called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were killed off by the year 70, and history has largely forgotten them. But most biblical historians believe that John the Baptist was a member of the Essene group. These were people that believed that the religion of the ancient Jewish people should be participated in outside of the city of Jerusalem and, out and away from the Jewish temple. Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ancient Jewish purists. They were the people who believed only in the first five books of Moses. They believed in the Pentateuch. They believed in the original law of Moses, and they didn't consider anything else authoritative. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees not only believed in the 613 Old Testament laws found in the book of Moses, but they believed in an additional roughly 3,200 oral laws that had been passed down from the ancient Jewish teachers in what we have today as the Talmud. And so these were, these were people who not only believed in the 613 laws, but laws as well govern their lives. And here's what's true when you have way too many laws. When you have way too many laws, we all end up becoming lawyers. And here's what lawyers are great at. Not following the law, but finding loopholes through the law. So the Pharisees were incredibly gifted at finding loopholes through all of the ancient law. And so what they would do is they would say, I know God calls me to do this, but there's this law and this law and this law and this law. And so I can't do that and follow all these other things. So the constant debate that was going on amongst the Pharisees in the first century was this primary question. What is the most important law? What is the law of the roughly 3,900 that we follow? What is the law that should help us dictate how we see everything else and how we interact with the world. And so the Pharisees were the ruling political party in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so when they would gather together for feasts and holy days, the Pharisees would debate with one another about what the most important law was, what the most important command of God was. And so it's in this context that we understand in Matthew when the, the, the rich, not sorry, not the rich and ruler, when the young lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, rabbi or teacher, what is the greatest command? He's inviting Jesus in to this pharisaical debate. And so Jesus steps up and he says, look, you want to know the greatest command? You want to know the greatest command? What's the command through which you should see every other command of God? What's the command that should dictate how you live your life in the world? It's simple. Love God and love others. Now, 
when you're talking to a group of people that are looking for loopholes, you can't make it that simple for them. You can't just go love God and love others, but that's exactly what Jesus does. Look, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the teachings, if you want to understand the heart of God, here's the heart of God according to the Old Testament system. Love God. And the way that you demonstrate how you love God, the way that you put your love of God into practice, the way that you make your love of God practical is by loving others. And so, of course, the Pharisees were like, we better kill this guy. And sure enough, during the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was ultimately going to go to the cross and die, Jesus is celebrating a Passover Seder with his closest followers, with his disciples, with his apostles. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling them about all that is to come. And he says something very peculiar to them. And Jesus says to them, a new command I give you. Now, the Pharisees were great at taking the ancient laws of God and commenting on them, in debating what they meant. But the Pharisees knew that God alone could give a command. So none of them would dare give a command to themselves. So when Jesus is sitting there at the Last Supper with his disciples and he says to them, a new command I give you, he is saying to them in that first century language, I am God. I have the authority and the power to give a new command. And as we look through scripture, one of the interesting things about the commands of God is that the new command of God, whenever God gives a new command, that new command trumps the previous command. That's, the, that's kind of the new lens through which we see everything else that God has said. So Jesus, right before he goes to the cross and dies, says to his disciples, a new command I give you. These were Jewish men who were raised in pharisaical Judaism. These were Jewish men who were raised with more than 3,000 versions of the law. So I'm sure they got their scrolls out and they started going, all right, new command, time to start writing down a bunch of stuff. And this is how simple Jesus makes it. Love as I have loved you. That's the command. What's the new command of God? What's this new kind of priority command of Jesus? Love others. Like they deserve, like, they, like they've earned, like they are warranting? No, no. Love others, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Jesus says this the night before he's going to go to the cross and die a gruesome death he did not earn for his enemies. And Jesus is saying, I want you to pay attention to everything you're about to see in the next 24 hours because that is going to be the demonstration of what my love is like. And that's what I want you to do.
See, what Jesus is saying to us is he's making this abundantly clear. All relationships are spiritual because the way we interact with other people made divinely empowered with worth, created in the image of God, the way that we treat other people, people who don't look like you, people who don't act like you, people who don't agree with you, the way we treat other people is the demonstration of how we feel about God. And that's why in 1 John chapter 4, John, at this point, the last living disciple of Jesus, the last living person to have heard Jesus say these words, in 1 John chapter 4, he writes this, we love because he first loved us. We don't love because we're really good people. We don't love because we've become exceptionally moral. We love because we have experienced the life-changing, transformative love of Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Why? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's John going, look, your relationships define your relationship with God. Your relationships with other people will be the demonstration of your relationship with God. Let me put it a clearer way for you. Your relationships to other people are the evidence of your relationship with God. So every relationship is spiritual, and while every relationship is spiritual, marriage, marriage is a uniquely spiritual relationship. Every human relationship is spiritual, but if you are here today and you are blessed enough to be married, your marriage is a uniquely spiritual relationship. So, hands up for all our married people in the room. All right, hands up for all our people in the room who want to be married someday. Okay, so I'm speaking to pretty much the whole room. And for those of you watching online, married, single, divorced, wherever you're at, this is for you as well. Marriage is a uniquely spiritual relationship. And here's why we know that. In the Old Testament, the prophets Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos all speak of God's marriage relationship to his people. Hosea is a prophet of God, and God literally says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to marry a prostitute. And the reason, Hosea, that I want you to do this is because I want you to understand how I, the Lord, feel with Israel as my people. And I want you to experience the redemption that is possible in this marriage relationship where we have been redeemed and been given a brand new name because of the one who has paid the cost for the one who has paid the debt. Jeremiah refers to the people of Israel and says, 
God has betrothed you to himself. He has married you. You are his. You belong to him. Both in Ezekiel and Amos, we get more of this language where God is saying, you are my people. You are my bride. God has chosen the metaphor of marriage to describe his love and care for his people, for the church. You see, what I'm talking about here is that Human marriage is more than just two people who have fallen in love and decide to spend on average about $38,000 to throw a big party. That's not, that, that may be a great wedding, but it doesn't make a marriage. See, marriage is a covenant relationship. And the reason that we take marriage so seriously, the reason that God takes marriage so seriously is because God has chosen marriage to be the metaphor. He's chosen it to be the picture of his love for his people to the world. And so if you are here today and you are married, your marriage has spiritual significance. And it's not just a spiritual relationship. It is a uniquely spiritual relationship amongst all other relationships in your life. Because while every relationship in your life will testify to how you feel about God, your marriage is the only relationship in your life that will testify to the world how God feels about them. So marriage is serious. Marriage is a big deal. And I'll be honest, I'm not the ideal person to talk about marriage at least not alone. So I wanted to introduce you to um, the woman of my dreams who I have been blessed to be married to for the last 13 years. Give a round of applause for my wife, Meg. Hey, baby. You got that microphone on? I got it on. All right. Hey, so I've kind of just given us an introduction into this whole idea. Give us your thoughts, because you, you're, you're so much better at distilling kind of all the things that come out of my head so that it's palatable for everyone else. Rob always jokes that we write sermons together every Saturday night because he has to run through everything before you guys get the, the final, final draft of it. Um, so we kind of went through all of this together last night and talked through, you know, what's, what's the part that we feel is the most valuable to communicate about what marriage is and why it's so significant. You know, anytime you hear the word metaphor, I'm an educator, and so for me, I think of stories, I think of literature, and so if it's, if it's been a while since you've been in school, metaphors are a literary device, and the purpose of them, um, really, within, within most um, stories, is to take something that's not very familiar and to make it more familiar to you. Mm. So you take something that's difficult to understand, and you put some language around it that gives you a comparison that you can relate to, something that you can kind of grasp onto, and... <laughs> and um, understand in a more personal, more, more familiar sort of way. So when we talk about marriage as the metaphor that Christ has given us for the way that he loves us, what he's really doing is he's taking something that's difficult for us to understand. It's, it's unfamiliar. You know, it's, it's this spiritual love that Christ has for us that we really have no way of grasping, no way of comprehending. So what he does for us um, in his grace is he says, here, I'm going to give you something that you can maybe understand a little bit better. So he says here, this is the picture of it. 
the picture of Christ loving the church is a husband and wife and the way that they've been united together and the way that they love each other and respect and honor one another. So I think for us, especially in our marriage, I feel like that's been, you know, one of the real valuable spiritual lessons that we've learned is that um, marriage is not just between us. It's not just between a husband and wife. It's not just for us and it's not just about us, but it's for the people around us because it's this metaphor that Christ has given us. It's this thing that, um, you know, he said here, this is what I'm going to use to help people better understand the love that I have for them. Yeah. And, and so thinking about that, you and I had talked last night and you said something that I thought was so profound. You talked about how there's, there's an element of stewardship we have with that metaphor. Yeah, because we've been given this metaphor. This is the thing that Christ has chosen to use. You know, he could have used anything. He could have had any comparison that he wanted, but he chose marriage. And so um, since that's the thing that he's chosen, this is, this is a spiritual responsibility that we've been entrusted with. It's not just, like Rob was saying, it's not just I've chosen to spend my life with this person and you know now they're my partner and we're gonna do life together. That's important, but it's not what's most important. What's most important is we've been given this spiritual responsibility to uphold this metaphor. You know, if we are the image bearers of Christ, if we have been given not only individual um, attributes of Christ in ourselves, but now we've been kind of elevated another another step by being put into this metaphor that Christ has for his church. You know, it's really, our, it's become our spiritual responsibility. We've been entrusted with presenting the image of Christ and the image of his love to the people around us. So I, I just want to, there's something you said in that that is so beautiful. This idea that if you're married, and, and let me specifically say, if, if, you're, if you're watching this, if you're here today, if you're watching online, and you're married and you're not a believer, then, then I still believe your, your marriage is important and the health of your marriage is important. But if you're a married person who's here, if you're a married person watching and you're a believer, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus as the salvation of all mankind, then I just want to tell you, you have a sacred responsibility your marriage is about more than the two people who have been united. Your marriage actually becomes a blessing to the world around you. And so we talked about this and this idea of why it's so important then. If we, if we consider our marriage like any other stewardship, like we talked about two weeks ago, if your marriage is something that you've been given to steward, you are a manager. You've got to manage your marriage well. So what, talk to us about that. What does that look like? I mean, I think if, if that marriage, if that gift that we've been given is properly managed, it becomes a gift to the people around us because it's their access point, really. It's their way of looking at us and seeing, oh, that's what Christ is like. That's mm -hmm. what Christ means when he says he loves his church. He loves his church the way that a husband loves his wife. And so if we are being good managers, if we are being good stewards of this position that we've been given, then it should be a gift to the people around us. It should be something that they can look at and learn from and better understand Christ through what they're seeing in our lives. And can we just confess, let's, let's be real, we don't see our marriage that way all the time. It's, it's a, can we just confess, it's a struggle to see your marriage that way. It's a struggle to see your marriage as a gift you have been entrusted with to manage well and steward well, not just for your happiness, but for the good 
of everyone around you. It's hard to consistently see your marriage that way and it doesn't come easy. But here's what I know to be true. Without intentionality, you will easily default into whatever is, is easiest, whatever is simple. Without intentionality, you will be like water or electricity and you will quickly follow the path of least resistance. But if you want to be a good steward, if you want to be a good manager, it takes a massive amount of intentionality. And so I want to go ahead, we're going to kind of open up a scripture together that many of you may be familiar with. And oftentimes, I think in the church, we kind of struggle talking about marriage because at least in the 21st century, some of the biblical ideas of marriage can feel a little dated to us. But I want to go ahead and give us some context for Ephesians chapter 5 that we're going to be looking at today together. Ephesians chapter 5 begins with two verses and ultimately will arrive at verse 21 before Paul, in this letter to the church of Ephesus, begins to speak to wives and husbands. And so this is the opening of Ephesians chapter 5, and this is the last verse that he says before he addresses husbands and wives, the two people who play a role in this uniquely spiritual relationship. This is how he opens up Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this is not Paul talking to husbands and wives. This is Paul talking to all of us about all of our conduct and about all of our relationships. And what does he call us to do? He calls us to do the same thing that Jesus has called us to do. Love as Christ has loved. And then this is what he says in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. This is not... Paul saying husbands and wives submit to one another. This is Paul talking to all believers saying submit to one another. And that's a hard thing to live with, especially as Americans where we are so proud of our individual liberties and our individual freedom. And what does Christ call us to do? He calls us to submit to one another to serve one another, for me to put you ahead of me, for me to leverage me for you, for your good, for your sake. He calls us to submit to one another. And I think one of the things that this can be really difficult as we talk about submission is that we often get caught up in this idea that I would submit to them, but they don't deserve it. I would submit to them, but have you seen their behavior? I would submit to them, but have you heard the way they talk to me? But here's what he closes with. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I submit to you, I'm not submitting because you earn it or you deserve it. I'm submitting to you because the Lord of lords and King of kings served me. 
Not because I deserved it, not because I had earned it, but because that's who he is. And so because that's who Jesus is, Paul is calling us in to that sort of obedience. And so this is the preface, this is the context with which Paul is about to speak to wives and to husbands. So, wives. Rob told me I had to say this part because he wasn't going to. (laughs) So this is um, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, And as we were talking about this, we wanted to make sure that it was clear to all of us that this isn't a gender issue. Jesus isn't saying in this passage, he's not saying women submit to men. He's not saying that as a general blanket statement, like every woman should submit to every man that she knows. That's not the way this works. Um, the, the scripture is talking specifically about that marriage relationship that we've already begun, begun unpacking. You know, that picture of the intimate relationship, the way that Christ loves his church. So when a wife and a husband have that committed relationship, that's what he's talking about. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. So just the same way that he's already, in the previous verse, commanded us to submit to one another, to serve one another, to find ways to um, be servants to each other, whether we deserve it or not. He's saying that same thing again. He's reiterating it because it's not just about our general relationships with everyone that we know. It's now even more specific and even more significant because of that marriage metaphor that we've been given. So yes, we're submitting to one another in a general sense, but now more specifically with with kind of a heightened sense of spiritual significance. Mm -hmm. He's reiterating this statement to the wives um, within the context of the marriage. Um, and just like, just like Christ, just like our relationship to Christ, um, when Christ calls us to submit to him, he's not, he's not demanding anything of us. He's inviting us. He's inviting us into relationship with him. He's inviting us to come walk alongside him. And as we walk alongside him, we're submitting in that we are accepting the invitation that he's extended to us. And so it's the same in our relationships as husbands and wives that if we are submitting um, as wives to our husbands, if I'm submitting to my husband, then I'm not, I'm not feeling like he is lording anything over me. Instead, I'm, in, I'm accepting an invitation that he's extended to me. He's invited me into this intimate relationship with him, and the submission for me is to accept that invitation and to walk alongside him in that relationship. Hmm. I, I do want to go ahead and just say this, because I think it, it's easy for us to miss And I've been in enough groups of men talking about this section of scripture. So I just want to go ahead and say this out loud, even if it's for no one in the room, even if it's maybe for three people just watching online. Paul is saying all of this in a letter. So Paul is letting you know up front who he's talking to. So at the beginning of verse 22, he says, wives. So husbands, this isn't for us. This isn't for us. So when you talk to your wife, don't go, well, let me tell you, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Paul wasn't talking to you. But he is about to. Husbands. Husbands. Love your wives. 
As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ has done for the church. And husbands, that's the command God has given us. Now, if you read all of this and go, yeah, I can, I can bathe my wife, that's not what he's saying. I mean, you can do that. That's part of marriage, but that's not what he's saying here. He's making the point that this is what Christ has done. This is what Christ has done for the church. If you want to know the picture of love, husbands, that you're supposed to follow when you're looking at your spouse, that's the example. That's the model. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why is that? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and now he quotes Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, this is the picture and this is what we're going to talk about a little bit in two weeks when we talk about God's design for sex. Is it's this idea of a unity that is a picture of the unity of the Trinity. The unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. The unity of Christ in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what your marriage puts on display. Your marriage magnifies the unity of Christ and the church by how the two become one flesh. And this is why he says it. This mystery is profound. Well, of course it is for Paul. Paul never got married. So Paul spent his whole life single. So if you really have a hard time with this, you can be like, well, you know what? The guy who wrote this never got married. But as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he is full of the Holy Spirit. This mystery is profound, and I am saying this, that it refers to Christ and the church. It's Paul saying, look, husbands, love your wives as selflessly, as sacrificially, as nurturingly, as, as carefully as Christ has loved the church. There's a comedian that we both love who once said that he uh, had, a, had a cactus given to him as a gift and then it died and then he realized suddenly that he was less nurturing than the desert. <laughs> and husbands, can we just be honest, sometimes we have killed the cactus. We've got to adopt this picture of going, my model for how to love my wife is Jesus which, by the way, is the same model that wives are called to follow. 
This beautiful picture. So, it's easy for us to unpack all of this and to talk about this in Scripture, but let's make it practical. Let's make it practical so that I can give you something to go home and do today. Because I'll tell you, as 21st century American Christians, it wouldn't be a marriage message if we didn't give you five things to go home and do and fix your marriage overnight. And let me go ahead and say that, by the way, before we jump into this. Your marriage didn't get to where it is overnight. You're not going to fix it overnight. The same lack of intentionality that got you to where you are right now is going to take even more intentionality to get it to where Christ wants it to be. But that's okay because your marriage is about more than you. And what that means is that we are all in this together. So let's make it practical. Let this become your mantra, whether a husband or a wife. Or maybe you're here today and you're not married and you're just going, man, how do I make this practical in my life now so that when marriage comes, I'm ready for it? Well, here's the beautiful thing. You can make this practical in your life today. How can I serve you today? Now, for some of you, who have maybe gotten out of habit of talking as husband and wife, if you've gotten out of the habit of communicating with each other, maybe you have to ask this question. But if you've been married for any length of time, you shouldn't need to ask this question. You know off the top of your head the five things you can do right now that would most demonstrate to your spouse that you love. And so here's the question, how can I serve you today? How can I leverage me for you today? How can I sacrificially and servant-heartedly, how can I in submission put you ahead of me? How can I serve you today? And I'll tell you right now, the marriage where the couple, where both people in the couple, where the husband and wife are competing with each other to see who can outserve the other one, that marriage is gonna be just fine. So let's make it practical. How can I serve you today? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Rob asked me last night, he said, well, what do you feel like you want to say to the wives? And I said, well, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you serve each other. Like, that's how you seek for ways to serve each other. But then I thought about it, you know, in in my day-to-day life, what's the practical application for me? And it's not just um, the servant-heartedness, but, you know, the reality is life gets busy. And when things get busy, things get hard. And, um, you know, if you have kids in the house, you know what that's like. And if your kids are grown, I'm sure there's still other things that fill your day. And you wind up, you know, filling all of your time and then getting to the end of it and going, where did it all go? How did I get to the end of the day with not speaking to my spouse or, you know, finding a way to serve my spouse? So I think for me, it has to do with even in the busy moments, um, taking time to pause and kind of just refocus and recenter and to think about, you know, not just getting my needs satisfied and getting my checklist done and, you know, making sure that we've got everything prepared for tomorrow. Um, although those are all important things, but if, if that's where all of our focus is and we totally lose focus on how do we love and support and serve our spouse, then we've missed it. You know, we've missed an opportunity. So I think for me, it's slowing down and it's taking a moment in the busyness of the day-to-day life just to think, okay, I'm not the main focus here. How can, I, how can I shift focus onto my spouse for a minute? How can I think about a way to serve my spouse and not just be the center of my own story like we talked about a few weeks ago? You know, I don't have to be the hero or the victim here. Um, it's, it's all, we're united. We are, we are in this together. 
and God has, has bound us together in this significant relationship. And so because of that, um, you know, it's not just about getting your checklist done every day. It's about taking time to kind of recenter and refocus on the things that really are important. Yeah. You know, we believe that your marriage is the most spiritually significant and, and, and uniquely spiritual relationship of your life, but, but it's also the most intimate relationship in your life. And unfortunately, what that means is it becomes the easiest relationship in your life to take for granted. Your marriage will be the easiest relationship in your life to take for granted. And it can create a world of hurt if we start taking each other for granted. So just that beautiful picture of reminding yourself, hey, there's work to be done. We are teammates attacking everything that's ahead of us. We have goals that we want to achieve together. But our marriage is a gift. And let's remember that it's a gift every day, even when it's hard. Let's remember that it's a gift. Let's also be honest. Uh, Meg and I um, love talking about marriage. This is probably our favorite thing to talk about because we love being married. And um, of course, we, we worked in college ministry for uh, the first eight years of our marriage and our entire dating life. And so we've had the opportunity over the years to mentor a lot of young couples who are now married. And so we love doing that. But I just want to tell you, if your marriage is struggling, don't be afraid to ask for help. If your marriage is struggling, don't be afraid to ask for help. Because I think especially in the church, one of the things that we start doing is that we want to pretend like everything's okay. It's like we talked about last week. Transparency is the antidote to an unhealthy heart. But sometimes that means transparency about the fact that your marriage is struggling. And that's okay. Be honest about that. Ask for help. Ask for help. Find an older couple who, who you know and trust that you can start talking with. Go see, go see someone professionally. Or Meg and I have the opportunity. We, we get to teach um, one class every semester uh, in St. Augustine at a re-engage. Re-engage is a, is a great kind of 16-week uh, marriage training. And uh, we get to teach a class every semester at Reengage, and we're going to be starting it soon in at the Hastings First Baptist Church. There's a bunch of churches that are going to be partnering together to launch Reengage here closer to Putnam County. That's going to start in the new year. And so, if that's something you're interested in, it's 16 weeks to give you a great kind of jump start on really healing and repairing some places in your marriage. And so, I want to invite you to be a part of Reengage. And, and if you're interested in that, you can just reach out to the church and we'll give you some more information about it. Yeah, and Robbie had said, you know, don't be afraid to reach out if, if your marriage is having trouble, but you don't even have to be having trouble right now, you know. Rob and I always talk about when we get the opportunity to be involved there, it's kind of like a refresher course for us. You know, mm -hmm. we, took, we took premarital counseling before we got married, but going back um, every semester and kind of just getting, getting a little update, getting a refresher course is always so, so healthy and so good for us. So even if you're not in a place right now where you feel like, you know, your marriage is on the rocks or anything, but this is still an opportunity. It's a great chance to just kind of refocus and recenter like we were talking about. Yeah. And in the meantime, I don't know if this is, if this is for you. We're, this is a marriage of two nerds. So this, this may not be where you're at, but if, if, if you are fellow nerds, there are some books we love. Some books we love, we'd rec love to recommend. And so you've, you've got a, a few of these that I know you wanted to <laughs> yeah, talk specifically about. Yeah, first on the list is my favorite. So anybody who ever talks to me about any kind of relationships, whether it's marriage or friendship or raising your kids or whatever, um, if you've never read The Five Love Languages, please go do it. It's so valuable. 
Um, for me, it helped me understand myself so much better. Of you know, it talks about the way that we receive love from other people, and also the way that we express love to other people, and how sometimes we're communicating in different languages. And so, the way that Rob and I communicate love um, can sometimes be different. And so, if you're not even speaking the same language, sometimes you can miss the fact that someone else is attempting to be loving towards you because it's not the thing that you were expecting to receive. So it's just such a great book to sort of um, give you a clearer picture of the way we as humans are designed. Um, so yeah, that's that's my number one, and I'll let you do the Yeah, so uh, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by uh, Dr. John Gottman. Um, I, I was mentored by an incredible pastor who has been pastoring for, what, 40 years now probably? Um, uh, he was he was the former um, uh, interim pastor here, and uh, as I was preparing to kind of go in to do some marriage counseling, I, I reached out to him, and, and his name's Ron Moore. And I said, Ron, I said, what what is your best recommendation? What what's a book I could put in someone's hand if they're really struggling with their marriage? And he said, Well, it's not a Christian book. And I was like, Okay. And he's like, Look, read every book there is on the subject. The best book I've ever read on marriage is called Seven Principles. Making Marriage Work by John Gottman, and just unbelievably practical. There's homework and steps to take at the end of every chapter. Can't encourage you to read it enough. And now I'm going to skip down to talk about Boundaries in Marriage by Henry Cloud and John Towson. Uh, boundaries in marriage are so important because boundaries are the place where you create more and more room for trust. When you lose a trust, when you have a trust gap in a marriage, when there's not, when there's mistrust or distrust in a marriage, it can create so many problems and so many struggles. And so having healthy boundaries in your marriage is what creates the room to build trust with each other. And then this last book that you want to talk about is not just for marriage, but by the way, if you're a parent, this might be the best parenting book we could recommend. Yeah, so um, if you've been a part of the Next Steps classes recently, you may have heard this come up. Um, it's been kind of on, on all of our radars recently. Um, the book is called Road Back to You, and it's all about something called the Enneagram. And basically, if that sounds like some kind of crazy thing that you've never heard of, it's basically, it's a personality typing um, system um, similar to the, uh, I'm losing the name of it. Um, Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs, yeah. So it's similar to like the Myers-Briggs system where you sort of, you, you can take a personality profile assessment and things like that and sort of learn a little bit about yourself. Um, but The Road Back to You is written from a Christian perspective. And so each chapter is about each different personality type. It really gets into kind of what your motivation is, more so than just what you, what you do in your life, but what your motivation is, because all of us have different motivations. And so the more you understand your own motivations, the better you can understand the way that you communicate with other people and the way that they communicate with you. Um, it's a really easy format to kind of go through piece by piece. And so if you feel like that might be a little overwhelming, each chapter is about a separate personality type and it starts with a page of questions that you can kind of quickly read through those questions and see if you relate to that chapter. And if you don't, you skip over that chapter and go to the next one. Um, so it's a great tool. And, and for us, I think it's really kind of revealed some things both about our relationship with each other and even, like Rob said, with, with our kids and understanding their motivations for the way they behave and understanding their friends and things like that. So it's just a really useful tool. Yeah, and we, and we say all this because look, we, we don't have a perfect marriage. And, and by the way, the perfect marriage doesn't exist. Um, we, we struggle and fight and do things that are not servant-hearted and not loving to one another. Um, but we just believe in marriage and we believe in your marriage. We believe that God has massive purpose 
and potential for your marriage. And the reason that we believe that is because your marriage is a gift. But your marriage is a gift and a responsibility. It's a gift and it's something that you have been given to manage, to steward well. And Jesus is put on display in your relationship. And so our heart for you, church, is that we would have marriages that are uniquely spiritual, marriages that magnify the love of Jesus to the community that we're in. So here's what we're gonna do to close today. We wanna invite you today, if you're a married couple and you're here together, would you stand and just hold hands? Would you stand together and just hold hands? Let's come on, married couples all around the room. We believe that God has massive, massive blessing in store for your marriage. And we just wanna be a part of seeing what God might do in your marriage to glorify his name in this community. So if you're around someone who's married, would you just extend your hand to them? We're gonna pray a blessing over the married couples in the room right now, and then we're gonna be dismissed. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we ask right now in your holy name, God, that you would take this uniquely spiritual relationship in our lives, God, that you would strengthen the bonds of marriage, God. God, I pray right now that we would learn to love as you have loved that we would let go of offense, that we would let go of hurt, God, and that we would accept the invitation into a trusting relationship with our spouse. God, that we would remember that your love is put on display for the way that we love each other, in the way that we love each other. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us every day what a gift it is to be married but also, God, what a sacred responsibility you have placed in our hands. Let us be found to be good stewards and good managers of the gift of marriage that you have given us. And God, I pray that every marriage in this community would be blessed and that it would put your love on display for this community that so desperately needs to see how Jesus loves his people. God, I pray that you would do this in your name and in your power. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and we will see you back next Sunday.